If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this October 8th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. And boy, was it turned upside down this week in a lot of different ways. We've got a ton to get to today, as is almost always the case, but especially uh, this particular week. Uh, In hour number two, we're joined by Charlie Sykes, former Wisconsin radio talk show host who just wrote a brand new book called How the Right Lost Its Mind. So make sure you tune in to that in hour number two. Obviously, the big story this week was the massacre that occurred in Las Vegas, costing at least 58 innocent lives, hundreds hundreds of others badly wounded in a uh, shooting rampage by this uh, guy named Stephen Paddock and hopefully I won't mention his name again during the rest of this uh, podcast. I um, live on the West Coast and therefore uh, was able to watch the initial coverage of this. And obviously it's horrifying and horrendous and every adjective you could possibly use to describe it. As far as watching it go down, you know, there was the horror of it. The insanity of it, the, the, those sounds of the machine gun fire was just chilling. And as is almost always the case in these situations, the initial reports are always false. I mean, it, it, people should always keep that in mind. But they were particularly false in, in this situation. It might, it might be difficult for people to remember, but the initial reports were that this was happening at three different Las Vegas hotels with multiple shooters. Now, we've learned enough from these horrible situations that there's very rarely actually a second shooter unless you got an ISIS situation or something very organized, which I do not believe this was, despite the many conspiracy theories. I'll get to that shortly. But um, I knew almost immediately that this was not occurring any other place than the Mandalay Bay because had it been occurring elsewhere, there would be 
instant and massive evidence to that effect. And this might be my biggest pet peeve when it comes to people evaluating situations and evidence, whether it's a criminal case or politically or what have you, especially when it comes in the realm of conspiracies. And I'm an anti-conspiracy person, ardent anti-conspiracy person. The number one thing that people never think about, and I, I don't know whether or not this is a lack of imaginative thinking, if this is just the way most people's brains are wired, but people never think about what the lack of evidence means. And what I mean by that is this. Had there been three situations simultaneously in Las Vegas, in this era, with everybody having a cell phone, there would be instant evidence of that. Instant. It would be undeniable. And so in situations like this, the absence of evidence is the ultimate evidence of absence. So I was pretty confident that really by the time the media coverage started, that this thing not only was isolated to Mandalay Bay, but it was only one situation and it was over. And But that didn't, of course, mitigate the horrendous, horrific damage that was done, the innocent lives that were lost. And, you know, the way this went down, I think partially because of the fact that so much carnage was created, it has fostered some really crackpot theories on what transpired. I... I think it's a human reality. And when we saw this, I think, at least in my experience, although I wasn't even born yet, but certainly in, in my generation, with the Kennedy assassination, people cannot wrap their brains around the idea of one lone nut causing so much damage so relatively easily. And that's why people just could never accept. And to this day, I still think it's a majority of people in America who do not accept that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone to kill JFK, which he did. I've studied it extensively. I used to, when I was young and stupid, I was a conspiracy guy on the JFK assassination. I believed in the mafia conspiracy. The more I learned, the more I realized, no. This was Oxum's razor. This was one guy, Lee Harvey Oswald, and he acted alone. And, you know, did he have some weird ties? And are there some unanswered questions? Yeah. But the basics of it one guy, one shooter, killed the President of the United States. And we have a similar situation here with regard to the level of damage done. And also, by the way, the way that he did it. I mean, it's, the Mandalay Bay 32nd ho you know, floor of the hotel, kind of similar to the sixth floor of the school book depository building. And in one of my first reactions, and it sounds like it's high, you know 2020 hindsight, although it was instant. I mean, the instant that the news reports came down, I was like, who puts a concert with 20,000 people directly under a large building where you can't even see inside the windows. I mean, that seems insane. I'm, I'm hardly a security expert, but that just seems like common sense. And now, obviously, 
in retrospect, uh, you know, it was a very bad idea because it was a sniper's paradise if you have the right guns to do the job, which this bastard obviously did. So we have this strange psychological block on accepting that one lone loser could do something like this. What makes this situation even more difficult to grasp is that the shooter really wasn't a loser, depending on your definition, obviously. I mean, inherently, anybody that does this is a loser. But up until this point, by standard definitions, this guy had lived a pretty successful life. And he was 64 years old as opposed to you know, much younger, which is usually the profile of a nut job who does this. But this guy was financially successful. He was a real estate investor. Apparently, he was an expert gambler who was worth millions of dollars. And my instant reaction to this, the next morning, on Monday morning, I wrote a column about this, which I urge you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I have to tell you, it's to this day, a week later, I still believe the most accurate depiction of what likely transpired here that I have read. I think I nailed this one. And, you know, I, I know my strengths and weaknesses really well. I am very mediocre at being able to predict how people will react to certain situations. Of course, that's where the real money is in life, right? If you can predict how people are going to react, then, you know, that's gold. I'm very mediocre at that. I'm actually an expert at being able to figure out what has happened in a situation and what motivated people to do what they did, which is really you know, a kind of a useless skill. I mean, unless you're a detective. <laughs> I should have. I probably should have been a detective in my life instead of whatever the hell I've done with my existence. But, you know, that's why I'm a guy who likes to look at the past. That's why I'm a documentary filmmaker. You know, the, the money in life is in looking into the future. I like looking at the past because I'm able to figure out the pieces. Okay, here's what we know. Here's everyone's motivations. Ah, Here's what went down. This is the scenario that actually makes sense. And the scenario that seems rather obvious to me, yet investigators are incredibly hesitant to accept this, and the public even more so, is that this was effectively a very sick suicide party that this guy decided to put on for himself. He was 64 years old. My guess is, I'm kind of a little bit surprised we haven't found anything out regarding this. Wouldn't surprise me if he had health issues or maybe had found out that he has some sort of major health issue. He didn't look very good in the pictures that we've seen of him. But I believe this guy figured, I'm 64, it's all downhill from here. I've lived my life. I don't, you know, I don't give a damn about humanity. And let, let's look, about, look at what this guy liked in life. He loved gambling, for sure. He loved prostitutes, apparently. 
He apparently liked country music. He obviously had a thing for guns. So, gee, let's see. How would Las Vegas at a country music festival where you end up going out with effectively the ultimate gun experience, as sick as that is to contemplate, after parting your ass off and gambling for hours and hours and hours and engaging in prostitutes for that last weekend, that sounds like um, a going-away party that you throw for yourself, doesn't it? That's what that is, folks. Now, that is very, very threatening for humans to be able to accept because that goes at the heart of our entire existence. That goes at the heart of what holds our society together because that's not supposed to happen, especially by people who are older and successful, right? Because what's going on here? This guy was white, male, rich, you know, 64. We don't know for sure what his health situation was, but he had no children. He was not married. And as I write in the column, it's obvious the key element here is This guy did not believe in an afterlife. Because if you believe in an afterlife where good people are rewarded and bad people are punished, you would never do something like this. It would be insane. And this guy does not appear to be technically, medically insane. Yeah, I know he had he was taking anxiety drugs or whatever, but that's that's not insanity. This guy was able to function. Perfectly fine, despite a horrible history with his father, being a bank robber and being out of the family at a very early age, which I'm sure in some way, shape, or form dramatically influenced this guy's life. But there's no evidence he was insane. He functioned perfectly fine for 64 years. And as I said, was very successful in certain elements of life. He was not dumb. You cannot be you cannot be a highly successful gambler to that level and be dumb. The inner workings of this shooting clearly indicated he was not dumb. Sick, selfish as hell, but not dumb. And even more frighteningly, not insane. Because If you don't believe in right or wrong being inherently important, which we're losing fast in our society, and if you don't have something to look forward to in life, in other words, you're too old to care very much about the future, and if you don't have a wife and or kids, if you take away those elements... Really, the last major thing which holds society together, which prevents people from just saying, fuck it. You know what? It might be fun to kill as many people as I can as I go out. The only thing that keeps that from happening by people who are relatively good members of society up until that is a belief That something will happen after they die. That they want to avoid. And guess what? 
folks, this is the scariest part. This is the part that I think has dire consequences for the future. We have never lived in a society, certainly not in modern times, where so many older people no longer believe in an afterlife. That's statistically true. And it's happening at a very rapid pace. And I think we're going to end up seeing more. Maybe not to this level, because this was an extraordinary set of circumstances. But I have always believed that one of the many problems we're going to face with our demographic shifts in this country is that the generation getting old now is the first one that does not adhere overwhelmingly to the idea of an afterlife, some sort of religion that keeps people in check. It's often been said that religion is the opiate of the masses. I believe that. Now, I'm agnostic. I grew up Catholic. I now often refer to myself as a recovering Catholic. I would like nothing better, nothing better than for there to be an afterlife where people are rewarded for good and punished for bad. It would make this entire existence a hell of a lot more <laughs> sustainable and interesting and you know worthwhile. I would be thrilled. Nobody would be more thrilled than me. I don't believe that that's likely. In fact, I think that's exceedingly unlikely. Why is it exceedingly unlikely? Well, for one thing, everyone telling me that there is an afterlife has no credibility. <laughs> that's, that's the number one thing. I mean, the people that are telling me there's an afterlife in this beautiful, you know, what I perceive to be a fairy tale of what happens. Oh, well, you get to see the people that have died before you and you're, you're, you're reunited forever and good is rewarded and bad is punished. Boy, that would be awesome, right? But all the people telling me this fairy tale have also told me other things that I know to be 100% false. And so, therefore, they have no credibility to me. And that reality of this fantasy, this fairy tale of an afterlife, is completely incompatible with what I see here on Earth and the way things work. Now, you know, that's obviously a very complex uh, situation, you know, set of circumstances and a subject that probably requires a totally different uh, podcast for another day. But for the sake of this conversation, that's where I'm coming from on this. But see, I believe in right and wrong. I believe that right and wrong matter. I would never do something that I knew to be blatantly wrong without some sort of extraordinary justification. And that would be based in morality. Now, why I believe that, you know, I've thought a lot about. It's mostly because that's the way my mother brought me up. And I believe I owe it to my mother to live life in the way that she taught me to. She's no longer here, killed in a car accident in 1994. So it's basically out of loyalty to my mother, but also a belief in the fact that if we're going to have a productive society, that belief is paramount to keeping and holding everything together. You know, it's funny. A lot of people think that the name Ziegler is Jewish. It's not. Uh, although there are a lot of 
Jews who are named Ziegler, a lot of Zieglers who are Jewish. But the reason I mention this is that Jews, by and large, do not believe in an afterlife. Yet they commit very, very little violent crime, especially here in America. Almost never. I mean, statistically, I'm pretty sure this is accurate, that, that Jews commit percentage-wise of a smaller percentage of violent crime than any other ethnic group. In fact, my wife and I, whenever we watch the news here in Los Angeles, and you know, there's a report of another uh, killing or some horrible crime, one of us will almost invariably turn to the other and go, it's those damn Jews again, isn't it? Because it's never the Jews. It's never, ever the Jews, and there are plenty of Jews in Los Angeles. So why is that? You know, you could, by the way, Jews are hardly perfect. You can certainly argue that Jews might be more prone to committing other acts of immorality that aren't involved with violence in maybe the financial realm. But that's another story for another day. The, The reality is that their social mores, they believe in. They believe that what happens here on earth matters and that you must be able to hold a society together. And in order to do that, you must stick to those mores. Well, this guy in Las Vegas didn't accept the mores. He only cared about himself. He didn't believe in an afterlife. And he decided to throw himself a sick suicide party. That's what happened. That's, the evidence to me is overwhelming of this. And it's, it's remarkable to me how few people want to accept this, including the authorities. We've seen so many fragments. Oh, oh my gosh. I I mean, one day this week on the Drudge Report, Drudge highlighted from InfoWars, the Alex Jones conspiracy website, that receipts indicated that he had room service for two in his hotel. Aha! Gee, I, I I wonder why a guy like this who knew he was going to kill himself and was in Las Vegas might be having room service for two people. Well, one, he doesn't care about gaining weight, so it might have just been for him. (laughs) But two, gee, I don't know, Vegas. Hmm, what's what's really very accessible in Las Vegas that a guy like this might want to partake in in his last week? Oh, wait a minute. How about a prostitute? And then there was the story of the mystery woman who he was seen with, that authorities couldn't find. Well, gee, hmm, I wonder who that might be. Well, by the way, yesterday it was confirmed, or maybe the day before, but over the weekend it's been confirmed. Shockingly, yes, the mystery woman was indeed, just as I predicted on Twitter, a prostitute. Because this was a suicide party. But wow, the conspiracy nuts are out in Full force on this story. I mean, it's just nuts. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? I mean, I, in the era of Trump, I've had to rework my view of American society in so many ways. And it's always bothered me that, for instance, as I've already alluded to, so many people believe that there was a conspiracy to kill JFK and that so many people believe that Elvis Presley is still alive. It's always bothered me, but I never really thought, okay, that can't really be 
true, right? I mean, that's got to be a quirk in the data. Well, then Trump gets elected. And by the way, my guess is I would love to see a stat. How, How many people are in the same group? JFK killed by massive conspiracy. By the way, add in 9-11 being an inside job. Elvis Presley is still alive and voted for Donald Trump. If you put a Venn diagram together, my guess is you've got to get a lot of commonality between those people. There's a lot of common. And interestingly, interestingly, I wonder, uh, we talk a lot about the Trump cult and how you know, it's impossible for Trump to do anything to have his cult turn on him or lose their passion for him. I actually wonder whether it's possible that him accepting the lone nut theory on Las Vegas could turn off some of his cult. Because his cult clearly is full on board with you know, all sorts of utterly nutty, crazy, nonsensical, without any evidence or logic to back up theories on what really happened in Vegas. And will they view him as a cuck for going along with the the conventional wisdom on this, which in their minds is obviously false? I wonder. I mean, that would be so typically crazy of the times in which we live now, that the cult, at least some of it, might turn on Trump because he actually accepted the basic truth of a situation. In fact, it won't surprise me. Put this in the back of your head. Won't surprise me if the president eventually tweets something about Las Vegas, which implies that there was some sort of conspiracy there. Wouldn't surprise me at all because... From a political standpoint, I think he's actually got some vulnerability there. As utterly crazy as that is. But that's the upside down world in which we're now living in. So anyway, I, I urge you to check out my column at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Uh, it's a, Unfortunately, folks, there's no good news in this one. Uh, and um, I think we're going to see more similar situations as we have more and more people who do not believe in an afterlife getting to a point in their life when they don't need to keep living. There's nothing left to really look forward to. They're done. And, um, you know, might as well go out with a bang. If you don't give a damn about life, you don't care care about people, and you're not going to be punished for anything after you die. And that's, that is a scary proposition for trying to hold a society together, especially one where you know, access to guns and technology have exploded. And, you know, what what this guy did would would probably not have been doable 20, 30 years ago. Anyway, um, that's that situation, and uh, I wish I had better news to start the podcast with. Turning to politics and <laughs> the crazy world in which we now live, Something happened today uh, on Twitter, which uh, to me encapsulates the entire Trump presidency almost perfectly. So um, earlier this week, uh, Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee, who's a conservative, he's more conservative than the other Republican senator from 
Tennessee, statistically, Lamar Alexander. So, you know, you can't call Bob Corker a rhino, and he's been a Trump supporter. He may, he's decided to retire. Amazing how when you retire from politics, all of a sudden the truth just comes flowing out. It's remarkable. Well, he made the stunning statement that Mattis, Tillerson, and Kelly, the defense secretary, secretary of state, and the chief of staff, are all that's keeping this country from chaos. Now, I have often said that one of the great uh, fears I have about Trump is he's going to desensitize us to things that would normally freak us out. By the way, he did that again this week with it's the calm before the storm. What the hell was that? I'll get to that shortly. But so ordinarily, a conservative saying, senator, saying this about a Republican, allegedly, president, would be a massive story. Massive. And it was more like the, wow, that's kind of odd. I mean, what does he mean by that? And so today, Trump, of course, his ego being bruised, fires back and lies. Numerous sources are already saying this is a total lie, but this is classic Trump, where Trump is saying that Corker had begged him for his endorsement and that Trump turned him down and that, you know, Corker is just a bad guy and not to believe anything. And, you know, essentially it's the equivalent of the fake news. Anything that's bad is fake news. Well, Corker's response was off the charts. Off the charts. Corker referred to the White House as an adult daycare center where someone had clearly missed their shift today. Boy, that escalated quickly. (laughs) This is a Southern conservative GOP senator. Who is who supported Trump? Who who Trump, by all accounts, said he would endorse and tried to get him to run again for re-election, saying that our president is a child, is a child who is not qualified to be president of the United States. I can't think, and I've tried, I can't think of anybody who was of the same member. Heck, I can't even think of somebody who was from the opposing party of a sitting president who was a senator who said that about an incumbent president. Maybe some some incumbent president said something similar about George Bush because things got pretty nutty there. But for it to happen within your own party is beyond extraordinary. And I think that it's, Accurate. Because at this point, Corker has no incentive to lie. None. And by the way, what he said is being backed up by other sources. Incredibly similar to the Mattis, Tillerson, and Kelly are keeping us from chaos comment is the news out this week that the Defense Secretary, the State Secretary of State, and the Treasury Secretary have created a suicide pack. A suicide pack. 
that all three of them will resign from the administration if one of them gets taken out. So that together, Trump would never have the balls to get rid of one of them if, they, if he thought that they would adhere to this suicide pact. Now, that's, folks, this is some serious fucking shit here. This is, this is, this is unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. That we're even talking about this is ridiculous. But this is where we are. It feels to me, and, and by the way, this is going to sound odd coming from me, who's not normally optimistic and who's as anti-Trump as they get. It almost feels like, and I've alluded to this in the past in a joking fashion, but I'm starting to believe this is real. It almost feels like Trump isn't really president or that he's only president in a very limited fashion. It's almost like we have morphed into the British monarchy where he is the king, but he doesn't have any real powers. Like he goes around and does all the ceremonial stuff and people listen to everything he says and they treat him like he's a big deal. So he gets all the trappings. But when it comes to actual decisions, it's more like, yeah, okay, buddy, whatever. The, the people who are really making the decisions aren't, unless they're forced to, taking him very seriously. Which, in the short run, isn't the worst scenario. <laughs> it's actually not that... Now, I don't know how sustainable that is, because eventually you're going to find yourself in a real crisis. So, I mean, it's not something you want to have happen long term. But in the short run, it's not the worst scenario. But to my point about eventually something really bad is going to happen, I mean, when the President of the United States is needlessly making comments about the calm before the storm... And then coyly saying, you know, you'll find out what I'm referring to when asked, what the hell is that? I, I mean, seriously? He's making it up as he goes and not. I mean, that, that's, that's what's happening. This is a reality show to this jackass. It's our country has become his personal reality show. My guess is that the calm before the storm was just bullshit. Trump just decided he wanted to act like he knew something that we didn't and he wanted to show everybody, you know, how powerful and smart he is and how in the know he is. Which, interestingly, is consistent with somebody who's not really in charge, right? Because if you're really in charge, if you're really President of the United States, if you're really the most powerful man in in the world, you don't need... To be dropping lines like, it's the calm before the storm, you'll find out what I'm referring to later. You don't need to do that. Even as insecure and narcissistic as Donald Trump is, there's no need to do that. But if your balls have effectively been cut off and you're not really president, and you want to exert how powerful you think you are or you want people to believe you are, you might do something that nutty. And that's what it feels like Trump is doing. Trump is also doing this in the political arena. He tweeted this weekend that he's 
talked with Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer about doing a deal on health care. Gee, what could go wrong there? Nothing could possibly go wrong there except, you know, socialized medicine and single payer. Schwarzenegger, too. Interestingly, he also referred to Republicans in a separate tweet about reinstituting the fairness doctrine, which is just insane. But in a separate tweet, he referred to Republicans and himself in clearly separate categories, which is something Arnold Schwarzenegger would have done when he was here in California, which I've been predicting time and time again, that Trump will be Schwarzenegger too. So here he is threatening that he's going to do a deal on health care with the Democrats since he can't fulfill his promise of repealing and replacing Obamacare. So, I mean, it's very frustrating as someone who cares deeply about the country to watch this happen. I, I take no joy in it at all. I mean, I know some people say, well, isn't this exactly what you predicted? Don't you feel vindicated on what a joke Trump has become? No, I don't. I, I wish it wasn't this way, especially since I, I still don't see how this works out well in the end for anybody, including me or anybody who stood up for principle in all this. This, this is this is there's no good outcome here. None. Not that I can see. Now, I wrote two other columns that were related to Trump, although I, I guess not. Well, they were certainly related to Trump, which dealt with the 2016 election, which I urge you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And uh, one of them deals with the revelations this week about Facebook ads paid for and created by Russia that specifically targeted Wisconsin and Michigan. Now, I wrote this column uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because it <laughs> validates a theory that I've had for a long time that, that, or, that has a couple different aspects to it. One, that this really was the most direct and most impactful effort that the Russians made on Trump's behalf. And that two, it's remarkable how when you look at the results in Wisconsin and Michigan, they dovetail perfectly with what the Russian strategy was for helping Trump. The Russian strategy for helping Trump was not in trying to create new Trump voters or get Trump voters out to the polls, per se. It was in about depressing Hillary Clinton support and getting people to stay home by spreading fake news stories about her on Facebook and Twitter, what have you, social media. And so what I did was I took a fairly extensive, although you know people have told me that this is done in a way that was very easily understood and not uh, confusing at all, so I hope you'll agree with that because that's what I was trying to do. I go through this, the statistics and the, and the data without doing it in a mind-numbing fashion, and I make a, what I think is a pretty strong argument that when you look at what happened in Wisconsin and Michigan in 2012 and compare it to 2016 with regard to the closing polls and then the final results, it is 
very clear, very clear, something weird happened. Very weird. And it was all in the realm of Obama voters not showing up for Hillary. Now, there are other explanations. Obviously, black enthusiasm in Michigan was not nearly as strong for Hillary as it was for Obama. However, you also got to remember, Mitt Romney had a special connection to Michigan. His father was the governor of the state. You also have to, you know, people will say, well, she didn't even bother to visit Wisconsin. So there was obviously a great deal of overconfidence there. And therefore, there may not have been urgency amidst the liberal base in Wisconsin. I buy that. But you also have to remember, Trump got trounced in the Wisconsin primary. Worse than he did anywhere else. So Wisconsin was not a state that on paper looked good for Trump at all. And the closing polls were horrible for him. So I believe, and I think that my column makes a very strong argument, I believe that much like a football game where there's all sorts of different reasons why one team lost and another won, that Russia Russia effectively provided the game-winning field goal for Donald Trump in both Wisconsin and Michigan. Now, it's important to point out, while that is incredibly significant, and I can't even believe we're talking about this. I mean, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but, but more shockingly is that I don't even think anyone cares. That's how desensitized we've become. But it is important to point out that even if I'm right, that still would not have given Donald or Hillary Clinton the election if Russia had not engaged in Wisconsin and Michigan because Hillary still would have had to have won Pennsylvania and Florida. And I go into the how different the voting patterns in Pennsylvania and Florida were than in Wisconsin and Michigan because, as I've said many times, in Pennsylvania and Florida, Trump actually did get a hidden vote where he vastly outperformed Mitt Romney from four years ago, from four years prior. Now, there's a couple possible reasons for that. The most obvious is that in both Pennsylvania and Florida, you had incumbent GOP senators who were running for re-election, who outperformed even Trump. So you could argue that they carried Trump over the finish line. And I think that's probably the most logical scenario. But I'm not willing to completely write off Russian influence in, in either of those two states, especially in Pennsylvania. Because the more I look at the Pennsylvania vote, and, and as you know, I've spent a l- I grew up in Pennsylvania. I've spent a ton of time there in the last few years investigating the Penn State scandal. And it was right in the middle of the state. The portion of the state that James Carville famously referred to as Alabama. It was right in the middle of that state where I've spent a lot of time where the voting totals were off the frickin' charts. They were off the charts. And one of the biggest mistakes I made in evaluating what was going to go down in 2016 is having such intimate knowledge of the middle of Pennsylvania and rural Pennsylvania, white trash Pennsylvania, I never thought 
that those people would even be able to find the freaking voting booth. I mean, these people are on meth. They're idiots. They're, dis- they're, they're what Hillary Clinton referred to as deplorables. They're deplorable people. Most of them. Not all, obviously. But I mean, we're talking about real white trash. And so I just never had any confidence that no matter how much they might enjoy voting for Donald Trump and hated Hillary Clinton, that they'd actually do it. They'd actually come out and do it. But the numbers are amazing. And I don't even, you know, I've, I've said many times that in my one very short conversation with Donald Trump, all he talked about was how the people of Pennsylvania loved him. And so clearly Pennsylvania was at the heart of his entire election campaign strategy. There's something weird happening in Pennsylvania. But more importantly than all that, I, I, when you look at the most recent evidence, the most recent stories involving Facebook and the sophisticated nature of the Russian attacks on our election, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan, it becomes really difficult, really difficult to not believe that there was some semblance of collusion. Now, collusion has been a, become a, a buzzword. And, you know, what's your definition of it? What's your standard of proof? Those are all very open questions. But I, I have been coming very slowly to two different conclusions which seem contradictory but are not. I'm becoming more and more convinced that there was Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. In fact, I think there's a very good chance that when we all is said and done with all the dust settles when we find out all the facts it's going to be ridiculously obvious that there was some level of collusion was trump directly involved i don't know maybe he was smart enough to keep himself out of it enough for plausible deniability although given (laughs) what makes him tick i doubt that but i i believe that there was some level of russian collusion I, i just cannot believe that guys in russia were able to figure out exactly how with 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 incredible expertise how to target the right demographics in the right way in the right states to help facilitate an electoral college victory for Donald Trump i just i just don't believe that especially when we have all all this smoke in the other direction in fact the only thing that makes me think that this might not be the case not the only thing, but the major thing that makes me think it might not be the case is that the guy who would be behind this is Steve Bannon. I mean, Steve Bannon was the guy who, I mean, Paul Manafort obviously was at the, the head, at the center of this. But I'm talking about with, if there's collusion, but I'm talking strategically. Bannon was very much in the realm of this, this strategy of depressing Hillary's vote and emphasizing the Rust Belt as the target. So... Bannon, you would think, would have to be, especially since he's an internet guy, you, you would think that Bannon would be part of this. And if he was part of this, why did he get let go from the White House? That doesn't make a lot of sense. You would think that Trump would hold on to him for dear life if what I'm theorizing is actually true. So I don't have a great explanation for that. But I... So, so maybe the, the level of collusion was not, you know, tidal wave-like. Maybe it was more minor. Maybe there's apparent, uh, you know, plausible deniability somewhere. But bottom line, there was some 
there was some freaking collusion with Russia. Now, the contradictory part of this is I don't believe that anything major is ever going to come of this. By the way, when I say major, I mean Trump being removed from office. I think there's a very good chance Trump gets impeached over this, but not removed from office. Because I don't know who has the incentive to have him leave. And I think that the Trump team, either by accident or design, has done an amazing job of changing the rules, of shifting the burden of proof, of desensitizing us to this entire story. If this all came out at one time, if this all came out at one time with all the evidence and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Russia elected our president or tried to or almost did or whatever, I think people would react to it. But now, I think it's it's actually baked into the cake for a lot of people. There was a poll that came out, I think it was this week, where something like 77% or somewhere thereabouts of Republicans wouldn't care if Trump colluded with Russia in the 2016 campaign. Now, that's you know still a decent number of people who do care, but that means that, the by, by and large, the cult is not leaving him on this. And if they don't leave him, the Republican Party's not leaving him. And if the Republican Party doesn't leave him, he's not getting ousted from office. Period. So... I'm seeing a little bit of O.J. Simpson here. I think the evidence is going to end up being massive, but I think that the, the, there's going to be an insane burden of proof, and I think the incentives are all going to be so screwed up that nothing dramatic ever happens to Trump over this, unless you count impeachment, but being acquitted in a Senate trial as being part of that. The second column that I wrote, about the 2016 election is that this weekend is the one-year anniversary of the infamous Access Hollywood tape. And, you know, it's amazing to me how um, often this happens in our society, and our media world today, where the bigger the story, the more likely we are to never really get to the bottom of it. And, and there are certain elements of the Access Hollywood tape, the one where, you know, Trump refers to grabbing the pussy of women he doesn't know because he's a star and they let him do it. The one that ended, at least temporarily, the career of Billy Bush, but somehow allowed Donald Trump to become president of the United States. Yeah, that's the upside-down world we're living in, folks. So, um, you know, there's so much about that tape that we still don't know that's important. I mean, let's just look at this from the Oxum's Razor perspective. Access Hollywood is an NBC entity. Billy Bush, in his only interview after this hall went down earlier this year, said it was well known within NBC, within NBC, that the tape existed. NBC, obviously, it's a major news organization with a, with a very anti-Trump network, MSNBC. So it is not possible, it is not possible that nobody in decision-making capacity with an NBC, was aware that this tape existed for a long time. I mean, you mean to tell me that as soon as Trump announced for president, NBC doesn't look at what they have on their former employee for numerous years because he was the host of The Apprentice? I'm calling bullshit on that. So I I believe that that tape was well-known. How well-known, I don't know. How does it stay hidden away until 
almost mid-October of a presidential election, over a year after he announces for president. How does that happen? And no one is getting even asking this question. To my knowledge, there's never been anything close to an answer about that. And I believe that had that tape come out early in the Republican nominating process, Trump would have been toast. And why would he have been toast? Well, because back then, Republicans weren't completely invested in Trump. See, the reason why he survived the tape a year ago is at that point, Republicans are completely invested in Donald Trump. 100% invested. Why? Because he's the last guy who can take out the wicked witch, Hillary Clinton. Because you can't get anybody else on the ballot by that point. So it's either him or Hillary. So Republicans were forced to stand by Trump. I actually think now that the tape helped Trump. Why? Because Republicans didn't abandon him because of fear of the wicked witch. And I think there were a lot of unaffiliated voters who loved the fact that Republicans were having the, you know, the dry heaves and curl and pearl clutching over Donald Trump, condemning him, abandoning him, the establishment. He's, oh my gosh, wow, if Republicans hate Trump this much, there must be something good about him because I hate everybody in Washington. Now, I didn't see that at the time. I was dead wrong. I thought, like a lot of people, this was over. There's no way you recover from this. But now, and I write about this in the column, I actually think that the tape helped Trump. And one of the ways that it helped Trump, by the way, and this may be an amazing coincidence, or it might be an indication of some really dark shit. I'm not sure. I'm open on this. Is that that very day that the Access Hollywood tape came out, was the day that the intelligence communities concluded definitively that Russia was hijacking our election on behalf of Donald Trump. Everybody thought, who was close to the situation, that was going to be the bombshell of that day leading into the second debate. And that should have been a massive story. That should have dictated the narrative of the remaining three or four weeks of the campaign. That should have been it. But that bombshell got diffused by Pussygate. And Pussygate, I think, ended up, for reasons I've already stated, helping Trump. The Russia story got so obliterated that not only did it take it out of the narrative, forget about it being the narrative, it was, it was, so, it was so destroyed, so forgotten, that people mistakenly, lots of people, smart people, mistakenly think that this was never an issue during the campaign. And that actually helps Trump because it fits his narrative that this is all about, oh, sore losers coming up for, with an excuse for why Trump won. Because in the minds of most people, Russia was not an issue until after Trump won. Well, that's not true. That's only the case because... The Access Hollywood tape obliterated it. And so, you know, because we've got short attention spans and most people, let's face it, do not consume news nearly as voraciously as someone like I, 
does do or someone like you do. I mean, we're in a very small group of people percentage-wise, the people who, who really care about the details and follow everything. The common person had no idea that our intelligence agencies had come to that conclusion about Russia. And it's largely because of the Access Hollywood tape that that happened. There's also some interesting weirdness surrounding how the tape got released. Because I am now convinced after watching a Yahoo documentary, which you should check out if you get a chance, called 64 Hours in October, that just came out this weekend. I'm now convinced that whoever did leak it to the Washington Post did so incredibly haphazardly and at the last second because the Post rushed like crazy to get it out. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that the timing was not planned. Hell, the Post reporter could have been out of pocket that day. His wife, who knows? He could, his wife could have been giving birth or he could have been going to a movie or whatever, and then the whole plan gets destroyed. He got no heads up. So why did the Post get this so haphazardly? And then why did NBC release the tape like literally five minutes after the Post did? This is their property, NBC. I don't have solid answers, but these are questions that I think are important and could, and that's going to sound conspiratorial for a guy who's not a conspiracy theorist but but i think if we ever found out the answers to those questions we could this whole thing might look very differently as to how it all went down so check out the column at freespeechbroadcasting.com one other column i wrote which actually has a connection to the access hollywood tape for different reasons was about harvey weinstein Harvey Weinstein, a Hollywood mogul who is in the process of having his career properly be destroyed, he um, has effectively admitted having sexually harassed many women over the years. Apparently, according to the New York Times, he uh, has settled at least eight cases with people who claimed, women who claimed sexual harassment. Now, the... The first thing that I find um, somewhat amusing about this story is that anybody would be surprised. Let's do the math on this. (laughs) Let's see. We have um, a male who's hideously ugly, uh, whose job it is to make attractive females into stars, women who will do anything to become stars. And you mean to tell me that this guy is sexually harassing those women and using his power for his own jollies? No. Get out of town. No. I find this impossible to believe. Now, that doesn't justify it, but this is hardly surprising. It's the same thing as Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes is the same guy as Harvey Weinstein. And... You know, my column is based on the notion that, boy, can you imagine how conservatives could be destroying liberals for their massive hypocrisy on Harvey Weinstein? Because nobody's, you know, not nobody, but there's nowhere near the hue and cry on the left, especially among the media elite and in Hollywood, over Harvey Weinstein as there was, for instance, over Roger Ailes or 
over Trump, although you could argue that Trump obviously was running for president. That's different than being a exe movie executive. But my point of this whole thing is, wait a minute. <laughs> we as conservatives don't get to cry hypocrisy on this because we're the biggest hypocrites there could be because we sold out to Donald Trump. So stop it. This is part of the price we pay. We don't get to make this argument anymore. And I've been saying this for two years. This is, this is all part of the price for Trump. On what basis are we going to be able to take the moral high ground on any issue in the future? None. Because we sold out to a guy who's arguably worse than Weinstein. As far as I can tell, there's no allegation that Weinstein actually grabbed the pussy of anybody. Not that that's a, I'm not defending him. I'm saying, I'm saying that that appears to be the fact that you could argue that what Trump is accused of, credibly, by multiple women, is worse than what Weinstein was accused of, with the possible exception that Weinstein was in a position of economic power over a lot of these women because of his position as a movie studio head. Now, NBC News has basically totally ignored it. Saturday Night Live completely ignored it last night. The late-night comics have ignored the story. And that's blatant hypocrisy. Blatant hypocrisy. Because they didn't do that with Roger Ailes. And you could argue that Weinstein is a bigger, literally, literally and figuratively, a bigger figure who's more well-known to people. Roger Ailes was a fairly niche. He was incredibly significant, but a niche character within the political realm. Weinstein is far more mainstream. And he had enormous ties to Democratic politicians and to liberal causes. Now, the way he's handled this thing has been horrendous. <laughs> I mean, the idea that he, he threatened to go after the NRA in his statement effectively admitting that he's got a problem with sexual harassment is just bizarre. Uh, but there's a couple other elements of this that I, I find troubling. Uh, I believe Weinstein is guilty. Let me make that clear. But as is often the case in these firestorms, we end up creating rules that are really very troubling and set horrible precedents. Like, for instance, last night there was a big hubbub over the fact that uh, Gloria Allred's daughter, uh, Bloom, her first name is it Lisa, Lisa Bloom. Um, she uh, was representing uh, Weinstein, and a story came out that she had come up with the idea before she resigned. My guess is she resigned because she knew Weinstein was going to lose his job and therefore couldn't get her book made into a movie anymore. It's amazing how that works, folks. It's amazing how when a guy like this starts to lose his power, people jump ship like the rats that they are. So, but anyway, uh, the, the report was that she had proposed publicizing friendly photographs that the accusers had taken with Weinstein after the allegations were made. Now, and everyone was like, Ooh! even some very rational people like Jake Tapper of CNN, who I really respect, was, was leading this charge on how inappropriate this is and hypocritical for, for Bloom, who's a victim's rights advocate, allegedly. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on here. 
wait a minute. I, I, I despise Weinstein. I despise Bloom. I despise her mother. But are we really going to say we're going to make the rule that when a guy gets accused of sexual harassment with no actual evidence, because there's never going to be evidence of sexual harassment, are we, are we really going to make the rule that you're not allowed to even show photos after the fact of someone smiling with you? I'm not saying that that proves that the sexual harassment didn't happen. But if if you're not even going to be allowed to go there, I ask a very simple question. How is a man ever supposed to defend himself against these kinds of allegations? He can't. It's not possible. Because you're trying to prove a negative where now we've created a situation where the burden of proof on the accuser is non-existent. Now, let me be clear, though. I do believe these accusers. Why? Well, because of the settlements, because of the details of the story. They're vivid detail. The, the one, one woman who came out was the former New York uh, news anchor, came out the next day with a corroborating witness with remarkable detail. There's no way you put that together in one day. There's no evidence that she is seeking money out of this situation. The narrative is logical because of the fact that Weinstein is in a position of extreme power and he's butt ugly and clearly heterosexual and these, you know, women are good looking. So all that makes sense. Plus his statement was basically an admission. So those are all very logical, fact-based, evidence-based reasons why I believe these Weinstein accusers. But it's I'm, I'm frightened that we're fast reaching the point now where if somebody is unpopular, we don't like them and we start to turn against them in a firestorm, that all rationality is thrown out the window and there's no way possible for them to even theoretically defend themselves. Of course, I have to acknowledge I'm coming at this from the perspective of the guy who's been most vocal in the whole world, that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. And the two stories are remarkably similar, except they're not. They're not nearly as similar as they should be if Sandusky, for instance, was remotely as guilty as everybody in the world wrongly presumes that he was. And this happens all the time. I joke about this on Twitter. Not joke, but it's because it's a serious point. At least... Once a month, something happens where I'm like, wait a minute. Why is this story so different than the Penn State Sandusky story? The Weinstein story has numerous things, which I just mentioned. Settlements, details, corroborating witnesses, an admission, a narrative that makes sense. That the Sandusky story doesn't have. None of the accusers, none in the Sandusky case, have anything close to that. Why? Why? It's a very similar situation. A, a very similar theory of the narrative of how this went down. A guy using his power to get sex. Well, except we forget the fact that Jerry's not even homosexual. And neither are these accusers homosexual. And that they weren't young boys. They were teenagers. And when they testified, they were men who got millions of dollars. So once again for like the 101st time, the Weinstein story validates 
in spades my perspective on the Sandusky story. So check out that column at the freespeechbroadcasting.com. By the way, here's a story that I've never told you before. Because a lot of people will say, well, Ziegler, you don't know, you, you don't know, you don't understand sexual harassment. You're a man. You've never experienced this. So you've never been sexually abused. Uh, and I go, well, wait a minute. Hold on. And I don't want to overstate this story, but I, I've never told this story uh, in detail publicly. But that's not accurate. That's not an accurate view of me. I have actually been sexually harassed. I find it amazing that I was sexually harassed by a boss. Uh, considering the fact that I've always considered myself to be an extreme nerd geek with uh, exceedingly limited uh, sex appeal. But uh, this occurred in 2001, when 2001, 2002, when I was working for a television network in Philadelphia for the Comcast company. I have a lot of regrets in my life, but this whole situation might be right at the top of the list of regrets of the way I handled a situation. I was working on a television show that starred a woman by the name of Lynn Doyle. Lynn Doyle was the wife of a major Comcast executive, which is why she had the job. And Lynn was a woman who, like a lot of people on TV, was at one point very attractive, but she was in her mid-40s, I guess, and on the downhill slide, hanging on for dear life, this is why she's on the Comcast network working basically because her husband got her the job. And I was the head writer, producer, and basically her co-host. And things went great for a while. The show uh, shot up in the ratings, got a lot more attention. We won an Emmy. Not, regional Emmys are not that big of a deal. But we, you know, we, we won an Emmy because of uh, basically my work. And so she was thrilled with all this. And it, it start, some weird things started to happen. Like, for instance, she decided that the, the entire team, there were five of us that worked on this show full time, were going to go to Florida for a bonding weekend. And I'm like, okay, that's weird, especially since at first we were supposed to pay for our own plane tickets, which I thought was bullshit. I'm like, what, why am I paying my own way to go on a bonding weekend with people I don't really even like. I mean, this is, uh, now, now later, I think she realized it was a smart idea for her to pay us all for the tickets because it was basically just a drunken festival of bullshit. I mean, it was effectively, you know what it was? It was her using company money to go on a vacation where she could get drunk and, uh, and do whatever the hell she wanted. And there were some moments during that uh, weekend that were a little uh, weird, uh, questionable with regard to, you know, uh, you know, people in bathing suits and hot tubs and that kind of thing. But nothing that really hit me like, okay, I'm in a bad situation here. Well, long story short, at one point, she tells me, and it was not on, it was not on this vacation, but at a later point, she tells me that she loves me. And I'm like, okay, uh, warning, warning, danger, danger, Will Robinson. Uh, I'm in big trouble here. And then I do something incredibly stupid. Incredibly stupid in retrospect. <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out a way to diffuse this without 
offending her. And she was driving me, um, oh no, I was driving her home. She lived uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and she happened to live in a community that, where we had to drive past my, my home where I grew up in, in Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania. And I decided to brilliantly use the fact that we were driving past my childhood home to try to diffuse what I was sensing was a potentially romantic situation on her part by referencing my childhood home and saying that she reminded me of my mother. Now, in my mind, this was brilliant because obviously nobody's romantically interested in their mother. But what I now realize happened was she decided that I was saying that she was old (laughs) and that she was of no sexual interest. And I think this angered her. And as fate would have it, she held a party at her very large house for, I'm pretty sure it was the Mike Tyson Riddick bow fight. I think it was Riddick bow. Maybe it was Trevor. I don't know. It was Mike Tyson, somebody. And it was a Sunday night and Saturday night. Maybe it was Saturday night. And um, and we're at her house. I'm invited. You know, the whole crowd is in, the team is invited along with all a bunch of her friends. And she at one point invited me up to her bedroom to see something. I don't even know what the hell I was supposed to see. But I I'm I'm still incredibly naive here. Like, okay, this can't really be happening. And uh, so nothing happens because I make sure it doesn't happen. And I leave, and I'm thinking, all right, there's no big deal. And so the next Monday, I come into work, and I get greeted by human resources. And I am told that I have been fired. Now, this is the Monday after going to a party at her house. And I'm like, wow, okay. Now it's all starting to come together. I felt... I feel a lot like what I'm thinking James Comey must have felt like when he got fired by Trump. Like, oh, now I understand all that stuff that I thought was really weird and freaky. Now I get it. Now I understand what was really happening here. Well, my regrets come in the fact that, as it turned out, they fired me one day too late in my contract. So they did, they did not have the legal right to fire me. So I had a great legal case right there, not to mention the fact that I could make a hell of an argument for sexual harassment, and her husband is a major executive at this massive corporation. And so I hired a lawyer, and I did get a settlement out of it, but nowhere near what I should have, mostly because I ended up getting a job in Louisville, Kentucky, immediately, I mean, like, Two days afterwards, I got another job. And they actually thought that this was all planned. I'm like, guys, this was not planned. I was not planning on getting out of the the television situation in my hometown of Philadelphia to go do radio in Louisville, Kentucky. But you know, from a legal standpoint, my lawyer thought that that made us very vulnerable, that this was all a big scam on my part. I now believe that my lawyer was kind of in cahoots with those other guys. By the way, one piece of advice, whenever you're in a situation like this, never let your lawyers meet privately with the lawyers on the other side. Do not do that, especially when you have any hint that there might be a conflict of interest. Because I think this guy sold me down the river. 
Anyway, I got, I don't even, I think it was like $10,000 or something pittance for what it could have been or should have been. But I have no doubt in my mind, none, that I was fired from a job in a major, you know, situation, television in Philadelphia at a massive corporation because of sexual harassment. Because I did not take a romantic liking to my boss. Now, that's still mind-blowing that that could happen to me, super geek. But uh, that's the fact. That's what happened. And uh, so don't, don't tell me I have no idea what the hell's going on here. The, the accusers have to take some responsibility here. Because at a certain point, there is an obligation to come forward and tell the truth about these assholes so that the behavior can be stopped. Yeah, you might lose a job. But sometimes, you know, they're more important things than jobs. Which is good for me since I've lost a lot of them over the years. All right, stay tuned for hour number two of the, the podcast. Charlie Sykes, author of the book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, coming up. As always, I ask only two things of you. Make sure that you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, make sure you pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.